welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about taking a stand. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Ramsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. Woohoo! Welcome back to season three, people. So we have um, a bit of news about the C word. Christina, our lovely Christina, is taking a holiday from the C word for season three, basically because she has so uh, much on so a much job, on. a family, and a hundred different extra extracurricular activity. Oh, yeah. things that Ed, she does anyone who knows so, Christina knows that she keeps bit very busy so you know she's on hiatus this season but we're hoping we can welcome her back for season four however this means that we have loads of exciting guest hosts planned and basically I'm quite excited it's, it's gonna yeah be lots great. of different voices lots of different viewpoints it's gonna be very exciting and we have our first one with us now would you like to introduce yourself yep I'm Jenny Van Kavort and I'm senior conservator at the People's History Museum Hello, Jenny. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for speaking to the viewers. And it's it's a very apt co-host to have, isn't it? Because we are talking about all kind of matters political today. And like, we've got this kind of wonderful topic that I feel there's so much to say about, really. It's hard to know where to start, to be honest. It's a very timely uh, episode is. to have, I think, because though I think for some people, politics and museums is a sort of everyday thing. Um, and even politics is, is part of their everyday lives anyway, if you're very sort of in the know about current affairs but for others it will be um, news to them that um, this year is the centenary of the representation of the people's act 1918 and this essentially has sparked loads of suffragette exhibitions um yeah. it's a very complex subject but um it's the, very now it's very now yes the the centenary date was february the 6th and it's the centenary sort of switched on um the concepts of a political activism in museums i think and the importance of collections related to political events so everyone's sort of getting keyed in yeah. and excited and interested not just that i mean this is a kind of an amazingly timely centenary on the basis that you know there's like a revival of feminism and protesting and women's rights in america for example there's a lot of you know the pink hat movement all that stuff mm-hmm. right so it's it's actually you know a really kind of well-timed time to think about things like feminism and political political activism and how we collect these things and how we look after them and it's yeah yeah, yeah it's kind it's of basically odd. what we're going to talk about today yeah exactly yeah exactly <laughs> oh don't spoil us <laughs> yeah ooh, ooh, ooh. i'll just jump in with this uh we didn't we, we're not really doing a news section because we were a bit thin on news this time but uh, i did see something recently that pleased me and that is that there's an lgbtq plus museum being planned in london it's been announced uh that is something that's going to open in a couple of years i'm not sure on the timeline but it's been announced that they're collecting stories and objects Mm -hmm. and all that stuff and that's kind of you know vaguely tangential to this thing yeah really interesting especially with representation in music yeah definitely i wonder is the is the people's history museum going to be involved in that do you think uh, yeah, so we do have a uh, exhibition which is opening in June, Ooh. and it's called Represent. So it's not just like suffragette the exhibition, which I kind of a lot of people, lot of people might expect from us, but it's going to be um, looking at how people are represented. And we've actually asked for people to kind of submit 
their ideas and that could be an object or it could be uh, a kind of group of things and then that might end up in the exhibition so it's going to it's it's not community curated in a way but it's it's kind of um drawing on different people's perspectives to kind of get an idea about how people feel represented in today's culture and kind of looking back at the representation of the people act as well and kind of a timeline of how we got to where we are basically um so it's really exciting to be involved with and there's lots of different types of objects that we're going to be looking at so yeah that's oh, gonna be that's gonna be exciting <laughs> really? yeah but there are loads of it's it's one of the things everyone's doing at the moment, isn't it? There's quite a few different uh, exhibitions on this topic, as we mentioned just now. So there's obviously the represent um, that you were talking about just now, Jenny. Um, the Museum of London has got one on as well. Houses of Parliament, Abbey House Museum, and uh, to name just a few, of course. Are these um, suffragette specific? Or, uh, I or think kind of... that, yeah, women's rights. Oh, yeah, they they yeah. tend to be called things like votes for women and yeah. deeds not words, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, a woman's place was oh, another yes, one. No, I think no, that one's in an yeah, Abbey House, um, and then also the National Trust um, is holding several events over the year, um, generally called Women and Power, um, and that's obviously just a, a few of the um, different events that are going on this year. If if you know of any other ones, we would love to hear about them. Uh, you can you know tweet us, and we'll retweet and all that stuff, right? So if if you know of any other events or exhibitions going on about that, let us know. We'd love to hear about them. Tell us about your event. Yeah, do it. Now, basically, this stuff is like social history with a twist. I feel like we haven't talked a lot about social history, really. Not, not as a topic, but I suppose this is social history with almost more defined purpose because okay so when i think social history museum i think tin cans and uh people's teapots <laughs> and you know like i you know it's this was my auntie's top do you want it yeah and like a lot of chairs uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of what i think so i'm thinking of what's in our social history store and i'm like it's a lot of butter churners and a penny farthing you got a penny farthing oh yeah Aww. it's very rusty um and you know all, all sorts of exciting daily things but this is kind of social history with a kind of a, a, a very niche you know kind of inclination where it's very much about women's stories mm-hmm. uh, suffragette movements political ideals it's really interesting stuff and yeah i like that it's highlighted and it's making social history even sexier <laughs> well, no social history yeah, is sexy yeah, it's yeah. not all teapots <laughs> i'm just gonna say that it's not all teapots <laughs> how does it compare jenny with the collection of the people's history museum well, I mean, I mean, we our collection is basically about everyday working people, and kind of that is our kind of form of social history, I guess. So it's it's normal people's history, yeah. I guess. That's how you could put it, and I think that's what makes our collection quite interesting because it's it's kind of. I was listening to something recently uh, by David Fleming at the National Museum of Liverpool, and he's kind of done a lot of work about making museums more diverse and inclusive. And, um, and I think we're doing that already, really. And, and he's talking also about museums needing to be emotional places. And I think that's definitely what, what we, we do. And mm-hmm. we kind of, it's very, like you say, it's very sort of current and it's not difficult to be that way if, if that's the way that you're thinking all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's still bicycles and teapots and stuff, but they've got sort of strange slogans printed on them and (laughs) were used to cycle to a particular. Yeah, (laughs) well, I guess so. But yeah, it's all sorts of stuff. Yeah. You know, the collection does have a lot of 
kind of Julian stuff in general, you know, to do with the kind of, which is part of the early part of the museum. So we used to be the National Museum of Labour History. So the early collections are quite labour specific, mm. but then things have changed over time. So it is, it's kind of, hopefully now a bit more kind of whole, well, sort of rounded really. Yeah, um, it's broader now. We do consider ourselves a social history, but we're not a typical, we don't have typical social history collections in a, in yeah. a sense, really. Yeah. Um, so that that what you just said about creating a more diverse political collection, I'm really interested in that because that means, I suppose, that you'd be collecting stuff from loads of different political viewpoints and um, potentially even collections that may be considered offensive. If you think about it, just politics will always be offensive to someone. You know, it's always going to offend someone because it's something they don't agree with. So ultimately, if you have a political collection, it's always going to, you know, rub someone the wrong way. But I guess if you have a diverse one, then everyone can feel represented even within their collection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess that's one of those things that, you know, that's what makes a good collection. It represents everyone. Mm -hmm. Even if maybe you as a curator or a visitor might not necessarily think that, you know, all of it is is particularly nice. It's not mm. really about it being nice, is it? No, that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Really, in display to how to to generate a sort of mixed or diverse viewpoint, a fair, unbiased viewpoint, without sort of offending anyone or or something. Oh, but can we be unbiased? Can anyone? Can, yeah, can we? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I think I think people come to the People's History Museum having an idea about what they're going to going to find. Yeah. I mean, we. Mm -hmm. I think the majority of our visitors do have a certain political leaning and there's no really getting away from that. But we do try to sort of represent different views, I think. And we have had discussions in acquisitions meetings about whether or not we should be collecting more right-wing material. And it's not it's not really about kind of presenting balanced views, but kind of it's finding that balance between not going against the values of or upsetting those people that we're trying to work with and kind of that we value working with as a museum but also try to explain better why people had to campaign with what they're fighting for so it's I think it does there is a there is a reason for kind of having that that mm -hmm. material because it shows why you know if it, if it's something that's very strong and it kind of re provokes that reaction in the visitor then they can understand why people would campaign against it so I think it is useful to have that what's interesting is maybe kind of what that would provoke in visitors as well whether you would end up getting insta instances of um, kind of graffiti or kind of um, vandalism if you were kind of displaying objects that were particularly controversial I don't know if anybody's got any examples of that kind of thing happening but, yeah, I'm really interested. That's actually yeah. one of my uh, Chloe's questions page of things that I've written down to, <laughs> to, as discussion points. The the issue of vandalism. Have you experienced any vandalism yourself? Uh, we do have one banner which I was I was looking up earlier on, which um, it's was vandalised in 2014, and it's it's a Scotland versus Chile banner. So it's actually to do with the um, in June 1997 there's a controversial football match between Scotland and Chile in the stadium where the basically when there was a um, political coup when Pinochet mm -hmm. overthrew the government and in the stadium where some of those political prisoners I guess you could call them were being held that match took place so there was a lot of um before the match actually took place there were a lot of protests about it or against it and this banner is one of those banners that was used in protests and in 2014 we actually had somebody graffiti the banner with a biro pen oh. um, yeah. but 
but the weird thing is, it wasn't really related to the what the the political message of the banner because they basically wrote they basically written on it. I had to write it down because I couldn't remember what it was. So Liverpool FC for the 2014 Barclays Premiership discuss underlined. So. So it's both quite verbose and specific, but also not really yeah. related to the banner at all. Basically just to do with football. They thought, oh, football, right, I'll write something about Liverpool FC on that. Well, pe- people do get very, you know, worked up about football. Yeah. I love of all of the, the different issues expressed by the banners and people's history. The, the one that really incited rage was one about football. Yeah. I mean, because I, mean, I was sort of thinking about if you had graffiti on a, on a very political object with specific politically specific graffiti then you might have those issues about uh, ethical issues about why whether or not you should remove that graffiti because it kind of becomes part of an object that's true but in this case it has nothing to do with that I think (laughs) they were justified removing it and um, I wasn't actually at the museum at the time but my uh, predecessor did actually remove it with a bit of IMS after testing the paint of course to make sure that it was um, safe to do and uh, we've got we have got photographs of it beforehand, so yeah. we, we know what it's it, but, um, yeah. but yeah. So IMS removes bio, <laughs> that's everybody. That's really- <laughs> yeah. So my um, my vandalism example is one of these things where everyone said it was probably vandalism, but it could have just been an accident or sort of random, random <laughs> kind of destruction that happens occasionally in, in museums. <laughs> While I was working at the Museum of Science and Industry. They had on display one of the Japanese kamikaze suicide planes, um, which obviously is a very, very evocative type of object. It's, well, it's just really sad basically isn't it and the, there was a the the end of this it it may i it looked to me like it was a sort of slightly restored area of the plane it, mm-hmm. it was a it wasn't a sort of metal end to it it was a covered textile then painted and it was that text that painted textile that had been punched through mm. and looked as though it had been as everyone felt slashed with a knife or something mm. and that was an interesting topic because obviously is this vandalism we think probably um, and then the curators had to ask themselves: Do they? How do we? Do we remove it? Do we cover the area? Mm. Do we state that this is what happened and create a conversation about it? In fact, conversation wasn't sort of the biggest issue at that point there, um, mm. which I think might be different in other museums. It was mainly just: Do we scoot it back so it, you can't reach it? <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. So no, but it's such a it's such a good example because if it is someone's genuine reaction to the object Mm. then do you respect that and leave it because that tells the story in of itself but then do you also encourage other people to have a similar violent reaction towards a museum object Mm, yeah you know that's not something you want to encourage no because everyone's allowed a reaction but preferably don't you know I suppose it depends on context as well, because I suppose that particularly sort of political or radical museums, that's the context of it. Reaction is the context. Yeah, that's but true. If you're going to a museum of industry uh, and machines, essentially, you want to see, you, you're going there to look at all the interesting machines. Yeah. Rather than it's, it's feeling sort of. Yeah, it's more or, educational. Re- yeah, than yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than yeah. feeling sort of politically challenged about it. But um, yeah. that's my example. Yeah. What do we do as conservators if we are faced with, pre- presented with an object that we're offended by? Ooh. Oh. I think I'm a difficult person to offend. <laughs> <laughs> that was my first caveat. I feel like I'm constantly <laughs> offended by everything around me. <laughs> 
think I take a very relaxed explain, standpoint in life. Explain, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I've just not encountered the type of object that I think you encounter in your daily life, mm-hmm. for example. I mean, I don't think mine are particularly politically charged, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So nothing has necessarily offended my point of view. Mm-hmm. I would still work on it, obviously. You know, it would. Yeah, I you think know, that's I, my. I don't that's think what I would do as well. I don't think there would ever be an object in front of me that I said I'm not working on that because ultimately everything is worth preserving yeah even even things that are challenging to me it's mm-hmm. still important to yeah. someone yeah you know it's yeah i you apply the same ethics that you would yeah, to an object. yeah exactly yeah. i mean that, yeah. that, that, that is it isn't it? that's the baseline yeah exactly yeah. so yeah. yeah so maybe i'd be even more challenging of my own treatment choices mm-hmm. to make sure oh, that i'm like, yeah. i'm really doing it right i'm not doing this because i'm being a bit harsher on this object <laughs> because i don't like it you know, i don't need to clean may, it <laughs> may, maybe i would be maybe i would examine my own methods even more closely oh, just to make sure yeah. that i'm being just uh-huh. as good to that object as all other mm-hmm. objects if i found a challenging one mm-hmm. how about you What's your feeling on that? I'd agree. I mean, I can't think of a specific example of something I've worked on that has challenged me in that way, I have to say. But it's not to say that it won't happen mm. in the future if we do end up collecting stuff that is kind of a bit more challenging. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it could go with, it's the same kind of thing that you might put towards objects that are kind of, um, that other people might be offended by sort of like a, a previous episodes that you've talked about kind of human remains and that kind mm-hmm. of thing I guess yeah. it's yeah. a similar sort of, of course, issue yeah. isn't it yeah. yeah you just have to sort of have a think about it. I suppose it, it's more of a problem if you're the sole conservator at an institution and you essentially just don't really have a choice. But if yeah. you if you're part of a group, you can get you can you could say I don't actually fancy this one. I'm sorry. Well, I um, mean, I can see I can see how there would be occasions when there would be like a very clear conflict of interest almost. Like mm-hmm. say you're a Muslim conservator being asked to uh look at, you know, for example, anti-Islam propaganda yeah. leaflets. Yeah. I mean, how would you feel about yeah. that? I would feel extremely violated, you know, like looking at that because it's so against, yeah. you know, it's it, it becomes it's sort more of directly, yes, yeah, directly affected. But then I haven't been in that position. But that's exactly. really interesting. I think. Sorry to interrupt you, Jenny, but yeah. that one of the points that I was thinking about was kind of like diversity within conservation. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're, if the conservators within the profession aren't represented in that, then it, you know maybe. I, mean, I don't know. I'm trying to get this out properly now. That's all right. I yeah, think, no, I, I, I can think see. The, the more diverse the, con- the conservation profession is, yeah. the more interesting those kind of those kind of conversations will will be. But yeah. I think you know we're we're not a very diverse group. As no, we sit no here we're not there yet. Yeah, we're not we're say. not there yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> we're not. We, we're we're a work in progress. We are. Yeah. As, as a profession. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. The, the efforts that we're making to increase that is a whole different conversation, really, isn't it? But I was trying to think of what I would find offensive and whether I have found anything offensive in the past. Um, and obviously you go to, all right, so would I be offended if I was presented with something related to an awful act of terrorism or... I think a slave collar or something like something mm. historical that's really just nasty. And I think the only thing that I've sort of worked on that kind of got to me on a kind of ugh, kind of level was mm. um, 1990s abortion equipment. 
Wow. Medical. And this was when I was working um, with yeah. a medicine collection. And it's not, I'm not opposed to abortion as a medical practice. I, I don't have sort of pro-life in that respect, but it was more just kind of the, the I suppose in a way, yuck factor of this is, this is horrible. This has been used. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't know actually if it had been. Yeah, um, But because I think they're just automatically disposed of, aren't they? Not oh, sure. I suppose. I don't know. I don't know anything about this. No, I, I don't, should, I don't I should, know I should anything stop about, talking this. about this. Um, but that was the only thing that I could think of. And there were a few things childbirth related in that collection that got to me on a sort of more physical, oh God, this is horrible kind of kind of way. But it wasn't a political or ethical. That's more of a human reaction. Yeah. Though, isn't it? I like, was just yeah. going to say that. It's a human thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. And ultimately, all conservatives are human. <laughs> yeah. So yeah like, even though so, we're all white women. <laughs> so, so we are allowed to go, Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's okay. Yeah, exactly. That's okay. <laughs> I was just going to say that it's interesting that we've talked about difficult objects because um, how about things that are actively collected that are difficult objects? I mean, contemporary collecting from protests and what's going on in the world now, that's a very now topic. Museums are going out there and they are mm -hmm. collecting mm -hmm. these things from the protests that are going on and riots and everything. And they are collecting these things and displaying them, which is, you know, good because we need to have these conversations and mm -hmm. we need to save these things. But I saw something recently that actually sparked a bit of conversation between myself and a colleague. And that was that an exhibition in Brussels in January said that they were displaying uh, clothes from rape victims. Oh, I heard about that exhibition. Which, uh, which was a, a way of uh, trying to de-shame uh, mm -hmm. victims, if you see what I mean, where it's like, look, you can wear anything and it can happen. So like, let's not make it a mm -hmm. thing of, you know, Ask you know, it, yeah, 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 none of that, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a very important oh. exhibition, but of course, that's a tremendously difficult thing mm -hmm. to be collecting and displaying. And I mean, that must also raise challenges for conservatives working on them. You know, like this is something very emo emotionally charged, mm -hmm. something very recent. These people are still alive and well, mm -hmm. yeah. And you know, they they are you know sharing something incredibly personal mm -hmm. and stuff like that, which you know I thought was. <clears throat> I thought it was interesting and it made me and a colleague talk about what we collect and what we don't collect in our museum, for example, because we don't collect difficult stories. No, I suppose there's... And the, the question is, why? Why don't yeah. we? There are difficult yeah. stories, plenty of them. So why why don't we encourage people to, to share them? Is it that we're shy? Is it that we're, we're not quite sure how to handle it we're appropriately? <laughs> is that, yeah, well, but it's like, what, what, what is it? Is it a fear of offending people by asking for really personal things? But at the same time, we know people give really personal things to museums. Mm. So is it that we, we're not sure how to approach it? Is it that the topic is difficult and we're all trying to not talk about it? Because mm. then, then should we talk about it? Yeah. You know, it's, I just thought it was an interesting thing that these things are being collected and displayed mm -hmm. and uh, like should we or shouldn't we and, and how does that affect us? I suppose in some ways it will also be like a mental health issue for like museum staff because ultimately mm -hmm. it might be yeah. you know a, a huge trigger to, yeah. to some some staff Ugh, members yeah. and stuff like that so which i guess is something else we're not really bearing in mind i suppose but it's all these questions and i just thought they were interesting i just wanted to put them out there and people can have opinions and they could tweet at me all they want about it you know like no, <laughs> please cause tweet because I, I, I encourage opinions i just want to put it out there because i thought it was an interesting concept for an exhibition and uh, a healthy one yeah, Actually. really interesting, really yeah. powerful. Yeah.
Can hard to move on from them. We've been talking about recently having more of a sort of rapid response collecting policy because we have got uh, placards that were collected at the Women's March in Manchester that happened last year. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, January 2017, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we do have one of them on display at the moment, uh, which is an amazing uh, cartoon of Donald Trump, which basically um, he's depicted like a Neanderthal dragging a woman along the floor as if it's a kind of club. Oh. Um, which is yeah it's 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 a really simple placard but it's mm. it kind of quite a strong image mm. um and it's it's one that uh one of the few that were collected at this at the time and i think they were just discarded in the street and we we were able to collect them um because they were somebody brought them into us so we didn't have kind of um they weren't sort of donated in a traditional mm-hmm. sense mm. they were sort of collected by somebody who thought we would be interested in them which is fantastic um and that's kind of sparked off debate about whether we should have kind of something set in place to to respond more rapidly to things like this and whether we should have um people present at certain marches to sort of look for, look out for stuff and approach people that's and say really you know interesting yeah yeah yeah, it's not something. It's not something we've kind of implemented yet, but it's something we've we've been talking about. Definitely, all of this is making me think. Is anyone collecting stuff from the uh, UCU strikes, the university and college union? Probably. I hope so. Maybe not actually. Yeah, because that's uh, right. So at the time of recording, that's kind of tail end of going on, and that's you know uh, affecting university museums mm-hmm. and obviously university courses and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of strikes going on because pensions. Yeah, uh, I wonder if people are collecting things. From I now. actually I so. Facebook tells me that I think Jane Henderson, her <laughs> very self, um, has, has been on a march, similar marches alongside uh, Phil Parks. So, Jane and Phil, if you've actually got some uh, interesting, some stuff. contemporary, uh, contemporary um, protest material, then please share it with us. That would be really nice. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about museum collecting. I don't know. Maybe if Cardiff would be interested, museums in Cardiff would be interested in that sort of thing. But then it's another. That's another issue, isn't it? Are are museums interested in this material? Yeah, exactly. Um, obviously, the People's History Museum is very interested, but but it's where you draw the line, though. I think of course, yeah. You could collect yeah. about. You could collect everything, and, and it's it's kind of having. I think a lot of the time we're having discussions about what where we do want to collect. Kind of, you have to sort yeah. of draw the line somewhere don't you there's legality issues of collecting stuff off the street as well isn't there i would suspect so because i mean if it's for example if someone is collecting something that they found discarded in the street then sure it does seem like the original creator didn't want to keep Mm -hmm. that but at the same time it isn't necessarily theirs to hand in i guess yeah um it's it's finders keepers is that how is that how it works i it's really interesting if, if some if someone knows i'd love to know uh because i i don't know how that works I just keep, yeah, if there's a if there's a political collections registrar out there yeah who, uh, <laughs> no i'm so curious now can you, i mean obviously you can do it yeah. but like are there implications of it i yeah. guess that's the thing isn't it or is it just anonymous artwork essentially mm-hmm. yeah well, i suppose it I've, i have two feelings about that um hang on do i what was i saying is it orphan works orphan oh no that's a real yeah. term in copyright it? yes and then, yeah that that's before. a real thing in intellectual God, do you property. know about cro- copyright law yeah that's because my other half is really into that sort of thing right so i, I oh have, my god i get to hear about this stuff <laughs> so you kind of have to be into it as well yeah <laughs> well i know it's more like it's infected me so now i'm like see. now i'm like ooh, i wonder what the implications of this are <laughs> Oh. But yeah, yeah, I wonder if they are orphan works like mm. that because they're they're not claimed as such. Yeah, 
Yeah. I suppose that the conservator me says, please just ask people, like the, the idea of attending protests that you mentioned, Jenny, is really interesting. Because mm. not only, not only is it really nice to then you, you could discuss sort of where it came from and the, when, when an object was made, collect photographs or, you know, even manufacturing information about it blah 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 blah. but also it sounds like you could get something that's a hell of a lot less damaged than one that's been discarded in the street <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Even, even so let's be fair some of these things are not meant to last uh, people make yeah. them well any- that's for damn sure all made of ah, bloody ah. plastic <laughs> but yeah but i'm thinking Don't of, get me know, started. <laughs> signs that you're holding up in a in a demonstration might have been made of anything lying around your house and i yeah. sure as heck don't keep you know acid-free <laughs> sign making material Why not? <laughs> in case of an emergency <laughs> i have cardboard <laughs> yeah, we have a cardboard sign is one of those one of the placards that was collected yeah. and it's just basically daubed with house paint by the looks yeah. of it yeah and i mean that, that's, and that's i think it's held together with gaffer tape as well oh, is it? Is just, oh. i was about to say well that's okay at least there's no paint there's no tape on it <laughs> damn nope. it <laughs> nope yeah pretty much everything that you don't want on an object but but that is isn't that the nature of political activism though like it needs to be immediate needs to be now so we're making it whatever we have at hand piss off conservatives (laughs) but there's issues isn't there with um even even materials that are technically stable just having been used so much so yeah they're they're very active items they have properly being used but that's interesting because it's the the use life that you can see in it isn't it that's that's, they're they're falling apart because they were used all the time um not because they were used there is something to be said about something that does look like it has been Mm -hmm. used as well the longevity of the objects will definitely vary incredibly Mm -hmm. yeah definitely are we thinking about this sort of material as in the same respect as ethnographic material in that case? If we're, if we're talking about um, underrepresented minority groups, um, repressed groups, Ooh. given a voice, is it sort of this kind of political social history? It, basically like the sort of the, the cultural heritage of of us almost, of, of different oh. groups in our society rather than, you know, stuff that's essentially been stolen 200 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and now those groups would quite like that stuff back, please. <laughs> we've, we've got the same, we've got different issues because nothing, there's, there's not necessarily the re- repatriation issue, but it's the same kind of emotionally charged is ownership the issue of ownership by separate different groups that i mean let's face it unless we are specifically talking about votes for women most conservatives won't be part of yeah the minority groups because we are nearly all straight white women (laughs) yeah i mean so obviously we're looking at very different things here because okay so for example women's marches and stuff like that then you know obviously that's half of the global population um yeah like yeah. ignoring entirely that is most of conservatives then you know uh, it's it's a, it's a representation that should be made and sometimes women's history is appallingly represented in museums yeah, vastly appallingly um so to be honest i just welcome more of that but for for some of these yeah it'll, it'll be much smaller groups and much smaller sections but it you know it's it can 
it can, it can mean so much because there, there are all sorts of there are all sorts of things you can collect because i'm thinking we've got stuff for miner strikes mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. example so that's in you know we we've got i once found a, a locker door with you know things like traitor and stuff written on oh it because it was God. someone who yeah. wasn't yeah. striking oh um, that really that's yeah. really interesting yeah and like, i mean that, is that in your collection now? yeah so i mean that's sort that sort of stuff is so important to keep it's a dramatic story and clearly traumatic for whoever uh-huh. whoever had the locker yeah and uh, you know that's an emotionally charged <laughs> object but it's it's such a vital thing to keep. But I mean, that arguably that that comes from a small group of people. That's the, the mm-hmm. group of miners who worked in the mines. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, yeah, you know, pe- people 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 in South Yorkshire and in many other places like you know Wales, that they, they would have had families and communities who can totally relate to that. Yeah. But I mean, it can mean something to anyone who sees it. Mm-hmm. You know, it can have an emotional impact on anyone. But it's yeah. I think it's definitely the case for, for kind of LGBT plus material and uh, that's something that we've been looking at in the past few years as well because we had another exhibition called Never Going Underground and that um, was to celebrate the 50th anniversary of partial decriminalisation of homosexual acts oh, yeah. and that was a community curated exhibition and it was hi- really highlighted the fact that we have very little or we did have very little material in the museum to do with LGBT rights mm-hmm. and history and, and I think actually working with those communities made us realize that you know that's that's the power it is is having actually contact with those people and actually having those conversations with the people who it's affecting so it it really is about that those same ethics i think Mm -hmm. and it's a kind of story isn't it that yeah 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 definitely and i think particularly kind of marginalized groups even within those kind of communities as well like um kind of trans people and how underrepresented they are within yeah. communities and um it's sort of yeah it raises a whole load of, of questions once you have that material in a museum you, you do you think about things in a different mm-hmm. way you think about how you how you present in those objects how you talk about those objects how how you expect your visitors or you want your visitors to react to those things as well there's loads of different questions do you find that you um, look at things differently as a conservator have you discussed with uh, minority groups about your conservation work and how it would differ or do you feel that I suppose the action of conservation is fairly kind of respectful to the object anyway yeah I think I think it is anyway but it does make you think because because that's not my history mm-hmm. I, I, I I think I feel more connected to the objects and have more respect and emotion towards them because once you know the story you you can identify them more if you see what I mean yeah it's like anybody telling you the story of an object if if it's if it's a cup sitting on a table it doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm. but when you know it's you know who it belonged to and what the what the story is behind it Mm -hmm. you see it in a completely different light it's the same thing isn't it as anything else yeah I have to say, without being specific, my change in job has definitely changed my attitude to object stories because at the uh, previous place of work, I wasn't that kind of interested. I mean, I was interested in in the objects, but I was interested mainly in the materials and and how their action affected the condition. But Ooh, now I'm I- much more kind of really keyed in with the object story and what it is and when it was made and what it you know this is interesting because okay so i just want to make a point now that i feel like a lot of conservators are very material based and that's sometimes because we're forced to be nobody gives us the story sometimes we don't even have access to the records Mm -hmm. about the object that we have and 
that can be kind of alienating as a conservative mm. because you're just working on this disembodied thing. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's interesting because it's one of those things that I didn't, it's one of those things that I didn't expect because I feel like as university students, for example, we were expected to do a lot of research and try to find things yeah. out. And sometimes it was impossible because there was no story mm. and there was no paperwork and the museum, you know, oh, we found this in store. We don't really know what it is, but it has a number. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, it, it really varied what kind of thing you had in front of you. But you were allowed to do a lot of research so you could actually find mm. out quite a lot about the general type of object, mm. for example, and that will give you a lot of perspective. And then you go out and work in life and depending on where you end up mm. that is not the case it's so rare to have the time isn't it's, it it's it's rare so to rare. have the time it's rare to have the information mm-hmm. it's rare people think the information is relevant to you at all because yeah. they just i just want this done it doesn't matter what it is mm. uh because they know the story but they're not really willing to share it mm-hmm. with you mm-hmm. which is an interesting notion that yeah. curators kind of often hold the power and then they don't communicate anything really to the conservator about what it is that they're working mm-hmm. on because they just think that your material scientist only interested in that mm-hmm. And that's totally a valid way to be as well, be in work. But I love learning about the yeah. objects. I love learning the stories. And if if I could, I, I would learn everything about an object as I was yeah. working on it. But, you know. It's central as well, isn't it? Because, I mean, in the same way as with ethnographic material, that you've, you've got an... You've got an object and it has a mark on it. And how do you know if it's if you know the story of the, or the the sort of I suppose the cultural heritage of that object from an ethnographic point of view? You know not to remove that mark because it's there for these reasons. Mm. And in the same way, social history object is you know that it's maybe a sign of use or a sign of modification or whatever. So knowing that is going to be so important. And I imagine it's the same with politically charged objects. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The Manchester Suffragette banner that we've actually got in the collection was recently acquired. That has got handling damage on the sides of it, which, you know, you wouldn't want to remove. It's it's part of the Mm -hmm. object. And everybody who I've spoken to about that piece has seen that and just been like you can see their eyes light up and it's it's yeah. I think with the social history it's a really good way for conservators to communicate their work because mm-hmm. they can people can identify with it mm. and that's that's not always the case for kind of beautifully you know beautiful art objects mm-hmm. that kind of have a, a you know that yeah everyone can appreciate their pretty things yeah but what what do they mean to people you know yeah that's why I love social history because it's 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 kind of it's got a power to it that you don't get from just kind of beautiful art objects you know yay social history (laughs) social history rules (laughs) (laughs) that's staying in the episode (laughs) so um another object that we've kind of I say recently acquired. It's it's been with us for a couple of years, but we haven't displayed it yet. Is um, the Joe Cox Memorial Wall, which was actually a. It, it's kind of how to describe it. It's, I believe, four or five panels of basically pieces of wood with two before kind of structures, and it's been painted white, and um, it has signatures all over it, and um, it's it's. You know, you could class it as an ephemeral object in that sense. But it was basically um, erected outside the House of Parliament shortly after the death of MP Joe Cox in, in 2016. So it was. It happened, I'm sure everyone will know, during the Brexit campaign. And it was the first time that a MP 
a serving British MP has been have been murdered since 1990. So it was a kind of a politically a really significant moment, mm-hmm. but also really sort of emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, this it was the the wood was kind of left kind of outside for people to kind of both nationally and internationally to kind of write their thoughts and like a sort of like a book of condolence but in kind of 3d form mm-hmm. um and it is yeah it is a really interesting object it's got you know pen it's got a sort of marker pen biro pen some people, somebody's written on it with lipstick it's got all sorts of kind of materials on there and i think when i when it first was kind of brought to the acquisitions meeting i was really skeptical about it because i was like this thing sounds huge. What, what am I going to do with it? <laughs> Where am I going to um, put it? <laughs> oh no! You know, but everybody was really passionate and interested in it, and and it it ended up that we did we did collect it. And at the moment, it's it's in the store, and and it is structurally it's fine. Actually, it has got a little bit of kind of damp and um, kind of curling at the corners just from kind of being outside. But on the whole, it's it's not too bad. It's going to be a challenge to conserve it because we want to kind of retain what's there mm-hmm. and it's more going to be I think it's going to be more on the documentation of it really than, than actually kind of it doesn't have any at the moment we can't I haven't noticed any sort of really specific conservation problems with it but that might come as we as we investigate it further so it's going to be conserved as part of an EU project which um is well it's EU funded um I don't have the full details of that yet because it's still kind of early days but um it's. I think it, it's going to be a really interesting one in terms mm-hmm. of how side to display it, kind of what people think about it. Kind of, I would really interested to to kind of talk to the community groups that are going to get, be getting involved in the project about how they see the conservation and kind of try and get a bit more kind of community involvement in that process because that's yeah. not something done really at the museum before. Is kind of like get opinions from the start about how we want to treat objects and how how people perceive that process i think that would be really interesting that's amazing yeah Yeah. what an object i've not heard of that ever been done before um anywhere and if anyone listening knows of a sort of community involvement in the the process of conservation that would be really interesting to hear yeah i'm not not saying to like get people in uh, kind of working on it but it's more like have these discussions yeah. about how we treat it really yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i was just going to mention a couple of things that are more for museum workers more for the museum professionals because mm-hmm. now we obviously talk a lot about collecting and people bringing in political objects but what if museum staff wants to be more politically involved and stuff like that it's it's interesting there aren't really any good unions for us to begin with <laughs> uh, unless you work in a specific environment mm-hmm. like a university museum mm-hmm. then there's that kind of group of unions to look at I, I'm also thinking of people getting involved with things like, I'm calling it a campaign, but I'm not sure it's actually a campaign or if it's just kind of a loose movement, but the, but that museums are not neutral discussion mm-hmm. that's going oh, on all yeah. the time yeah. about how we should be political, we should mm-hmm. take a stance, it's yeah. okay to have opinions, museums can have opinions, mm-hmm. um, that, that all of that is okay. I find that so interesting um, and I'd, I'd love to hear from people mm-hmm. who, who are trying to engage with that in that sort of way as professionals because yeah and and whole museums who are trying to do it because it's it's an interesting little fairy tale that we have that we're all above politics mm-hmm. somehow obviously it will depend on the kind of museum you are i feel like in a local authority setting you're certainly not allowed to be political <laughs> because you know you're a local authority and 
you, you yeah. the, the the local authorities run by whoever won mm-hmm. and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's perhaps a, a trickier thing. But it's that don't talk about politics at the dinner table thing, isn't it? Yeah, but <laughs> you try you know and keep what? it away. That, that doesn't apply in a museum. No, no, exactly. <laughs> that's not the dinner table. So I'm just I'm heartened to see this kind of. Uh, discussion yeah. going on and also things like but it's so much about funding though isn't it about oh, sponsorship yeah. and not, off- not offending the people who are yeah yeah so like don't away. don't bite the, bite the hand that feeds you etc but then yeah, does yeah. that just ultimately mean they're here in someone's pocket you know uh, yeah. does that mean that someone's bought the museum <sighs> it's god that got deep yeah no yeah they're, they're big and important questions yeah they are but people are for example upsetting sponsors and stuff like that you know mm. i can't remember who it was who was spo- had exhibition sponsored by well, the bp their oil oh. company oh yeah yeah uh, and there, there was a big this. upset wasn't that recent it's recent-ish but i can't really remember entirely when but uh, th- something to research for the show notes yeah well quite um and <laughs> that didn't mean to sound so pointed <laughs> sorry <laughs> no that's quite all right <laughs> point taken um but i remember there being a lot of upset about this and people saying that well art shouldn't be sponsored by mm. oil companies what's up about yeah you know, what's up with that? Mm. and then similar there's just been this great fallout that bae which is a kind of weapons manufacturer essentially has pulled out as n- the great north exhibition sponsor because people were very upset that you know arms dealers were kind of sponsoring oh i see museum work mm. which and th- these things are contentious but then at the same time yeah it's hard it's hard because pe- people look for funding in all sorts yeah. of places and then Ken Burgess B. Chew says, should we take ethical standpoints? Uh-huh. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of a can of worms that I'm, uh-huh. kind of, I'm enjoying opening, here opening and a leaving <laughs> and leaving to fester. There you go, can people. Can we revisit it for the funding episode oh, shortly in this season? Yes, we, oh. we can. That's a good point. Quick shout out to things like Museum Detox, which is trying to get more ethnic minorities into museums and stuff like that. Brilliant. That's also a, a kind of, a kind of political movement Absolutely. in the museum sector, which is totally awesome because we do need to direct diversify none of this bollocks where we're all white women (laughs) do we remove stuff that's offensive or do we just think about that in the sort of curation of having things behind walls that aren't immediately accessed i've been to exhibitions before where there have been signs that both at the front of the exhibition saying this contains potentially um offensive material or at behind it at a wall partition that says yeah this, this contains yeah we've seen of a sexual we've nature kind of thing that. yeah we've had that definitely where um a community exhibition had yeah it was sexually explicit material so it was to protect younger members of the mm-hmm. museum visitors basically and families who didn't want people to be to be viewing that so that's i think that's a good way of doing it because it's 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 not taking it off display, but it's still mm-hmm. giving people the choice if they don't want to. Yeah, and yeah, I, I agree. I think that's I think that's the middle of the road that you, that's the best you yeah. can do because I don't think we should be hiding things. No, I, preferably we shouldn't be hiding anything. I mean, if the museum has it, it's got to be something that you can show people, arguably. Yeah, and I suppose if you're the whole purpose of an exhibition or of the museum at all is to give a voice to minority groups and give a voice to people who don't have a voice mm. or don't have who who need more of a voice to then say you can't display that yeah, or I don't yeah, no, want exactly. that to see that is a bit sort of yeah. that in itself I, is I think we need to embrace uncomfortable mm. items mm. like you know like not all objects are happy objects and yeah. that's I mean we already do that we have you know museums dedicated to you know warfare yeah. you know we already know that we can handle 
difficult discussions. Mm-hmm. So let's not shy away from it when it's mm. political. Yeah. Well, I think that was a fabulous discussion. I I agree. Thank you so much for joining us, Jenny. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Hello listeners, today I'm with the lovely Helen Antropus, curator of the People's History Museum 2018 and the Suffragette Exhibition. Welcome Helen, please tell us a little about the exhibition you're working on and why my statement was incorrect. (laughs) Um, So this year our programmed year of exhibitions and events is called Represent Voices 100 Years On um, and it's exploring two timelines really, it's 100 years since the representation of the People Act and All Men and Some Women Won the Vote. But it's also looking at contem- contemporary voting and campaigning today and kind of looking at how, how far we've come and how far we've got to go. Um, we kind of came to this curatorial idea of, of marrying two timelines when we realised we didn't want to do Suffragette, the exhibition. Um, it's a narrative that's been retold and retold. It's a very public history element. And actually, there is so much more to... to <sighs> gender history um equality and feminism that we need to be using this year to have those conversations so it was really setting a challenge to ourselves to address the issues that are going on today that actually were happening 100 years ago as well so how has this worked then it sounds like such a vast and complex story how have you focused your mind did you have elements and themes in mind before you began So considering my specialism was in women's history, I definitely went in with an agenda, I think (laughs) it's fair to say. Um, I definitely went in wanting to look, really, really compare and very kind of explicitly compare 1918 to 2018. Mm -hmm. However, we did have we did have a co-curation element to this where we worked with the community and engaged community voices mm-hmm. in what they wanted to see. So we were really were guided by that, um, and they did really form what we wanted to look at and explore within the exhibition. But I think coming at it from a curatorial role, I definitely went in there wanting to look at marginalised communities, underrepresented groups, and actually ask quite tough and challenging questions. Um, I also went in there with... Um, with an idea that I wanted to use, I wanted the exhibition to be made up of at least 80% our own collection Mm -hmm. because um, PHM have had this thing in the past where we tell amazing stories, but not always with our own collections. So I really wanted to explore how we would use and how we could interpret what we already had. And we had this really rich collection of women's history objects. You know, Mm -hmm. we had in our archive and in the collections rooms in our off-site stores there were loads of stories waiting to be explored yeah. and I really went in there thinking this is the exhibition where we use those stories mm-hmm. to tell the stories of today and to compare and contrast them with the stories of today. This might be a difficult question to answer but have you had any disagreements along the way any politically charged dissent in the ranks? I don't think it's a difficult question. I think when you're working in a team, the great thing about PHM is that we are a good team and we work with a very politically charged subject, which we're all really passionate about. So I think the good thing about this team is that we can be open with each other and say how we feel without it descending into kind of tensions. Um, We definitely have different ways. I think not necessarily in the story that we wanted to tell, but maybe the way we Mm -hmm. all wanted to tell it. And especially with the kind of community engagement side of things, um, I think there's always going to be, it's an incredible thing to work with the community because this is their space, not ours, and we need to engage yeah. as many groups and as many voices as possible. But it's, I guess, coming at it from a, a history perspective, it's 
it's almost like what stories do you prioritize telling the past mm-hmm. or the present yeah. and for me telling the stories of the past will truly inform and inspire and change the present so it's it's and you know it's all a matter of space as well you know it's not just the visionary side of mm-hmm. things it's the it's the actual yeah. kind of nitty-gritty of it and you know Where's if we have go? this object <laughs> yeah what's going to happen to that object so I feel that there were kind of conversations and different opinions there um which I think is always going to be with such a vast subject and a vast subject with so so many different ways you could tell that yeah. story but I think it was good that we all really agreed on this isn't an exhibition about Emmeline Pankhurst yeah <laughs> and um the fact that we all went into that with that mm-hmm. frame of mind I think has really helped us overcome the challenges we've had as an as a team and externally through that that was very diplomatic it was diplomatic (laughs) so no uh, no kind of sassy stories about takedowns no 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 quite I mean being the kind of having the curatorial role I think I mean and I think you know I will I will happily say I think it was really important to have some a woman or anyone Mm -hmm. who identifies as a woman curating this exhibition because I feel I I feel like that we had to have that have that voice on it um and you know I hope this exhibition does what it has done for me which is really helped me use my voice Mm -hmm. and be really aware of how worthy my voice is and I really hope that what I've got from curating this exhibition will do the same for any woman or anyone coming to see this exhibition which is your opinions and your Mm -hmm. voice is so so valid um and I got that not through necessarily looking at the stories I was trying to curate but through how I was trying to curate them um and I'm I'm really certain that what I got from it other people will will have got Mm -hmm. from it too and I really and I, I think whatever tensions or communications come up within museum roles and within the process, which I'm sure everyone, every cons- mm-hmm. conservator yeah. and curator's experience, you know, is it's the validation at the end of what mm-hmm. you've put together yeah. and knowing that that is your achievement. I think it was important that a woman got to experience that with this topic. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Moving away from the specifics of the exhibition, what does a powerful political object look like for you? Um, what really gets to you on an emotional level? Um... I, I've seen so many objects. I mean, personally, the, the, the history I'm interested in is kind of early 20th century objects. When I see how much women overcame back mm-hmm. then, for me, there will always be a huge amount of power and emotion within a political banner. Mm-hmm. Um, every banner that I see in this museum, which are so beautifully curated, mm-hmm. conserved, thanks to you know the team here, including yourself, um, every time I see one, it's like you know kind of a someone squeezes your mm-hmm. heart that Aww. this was carried with so much message yeah. and so much power um but for me it's always the stories behind it like mm-hmm. the the stories of who did this and who did that and actually which woman I mean it's always female stories for yeah me. I can yeah. be really <laughs> open about that but knowing the stories of the women who did mm-hmm. those things really for me have a sense of quiet power whether mm-hmm. it's a banner being marched through the streets whether it's a sash, whether mm-hmm. it's a medal, all these things for me have true power. My favourite, personally, my favourite powerful political objects, I'm really interested in um, textiles and what, actually what people wore. And I think today we even, not just through self-identity, but through political identity, I think we have so many charged messages in mm-hmm. what we wear and how we wear things. And I think that's something that's happened throughout the past Um 
so for instance, I've recently been reading about a suffragette, Sophia Dilip Singh, who was an Indian princess mm-hmm. who grew up in England, and she only ever really wore her sari and her traditional mm-hmm. dress. She never ever wore it, only when she needed to kind of make a point. So when she was raising money for Indian soldiers in World War One, mm-hmm. she would wear this sash. And I just think sort of those things are so powerful but you don't really think about yeah. how powerful they are until you break it down and even I always do it with the things I wear whenever I'm talking about like so the other day I was talking about Manchester suffragettes and mm-hmm. I realised I was wearing a green and purple outfit with my Manchester bee earrings in. <laughs> and I realised that <laughs> it is so symbolic everything I wore identified with this suffrage movement mm-hmm. and with Manchester Yeah, and you do it without thinking mm. you, you know if you're from Manchester you wear the bee because you're proud of where mm. you come from if you're if you are uh, you know into feminism and women's history you often wear purple and green and I think there's so much power in what you wear so I guess to cut that down I think it is fashion for me it's one of the most powerful political objects that we have in this Mm. collection from sort of 20th century sashes to 21st century t-shirts do you have an example of a really affecting moment that's changed the way you see things really opened your eyes yeah, so I last year I was working on a project with Betty Tebbs, who was a, at the time, a 98-year-old woman who had spent her whole life campaigning for not only women's equality, but for peace as well. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a big hero of Maxine Peaks, and she was always at every kind of big Manchester protest. Um, you would see Betty Tebbs there mm-hmm. in her kind of wheelchair and carrying her signs. And I had the absolute joy of meeting her and becoming her friend until she died last January. Um, And she is probably one of the people who has the biggest impact Mm -hmm. on my life and the way I go about telling stories, because she really taught me it's it's the people you don't expect Mm. who have the most to tell and who have done made the most change Mm -hmm. and Beth Tebbs has never been splashed across national news no she never really made headlines until she died actually um but this was a woman who had has paved the way for young women young Manchester women like myself to fight for equal pay to fight for equality um and she, it's, it's the casualness of her activism. So when I went there, I was talking to her about Greenham Common and she pointed to a lamp next to me and there was a bit of the wire that she'd cut herself oh my God. from the Greenham <laughs> Common camp and wrapped it round her lamp. She had all these incredible souvenirs just which we would look at as museum objects. They peppered her home mm. because they were part of her story. Um and I mean, as a as a curator, seeing objects like that in their original context and seeing the the importance they have to one person mm. is always incredible. But to see the change one woman has made and how her story, her unassuming quiet story, mm. will go on to impact so many more people, um, I guess, really changed the way I looked at curating and contemporary collecting as well. Yeah. Because it's stories like hers and that you know we clear out our grandparents' homes and they go Mm. to charity shops Mm -hmm. and things and actually there's so many stories there that, you know, they should be going to museums and they should be there to inform next generation. So, yeah, Betty Tebbs, go and read about her. She's great. (laughs) Oh, lovely. Everyone do that. What makes a good radical or political museum or exhibition? I think museum, it has to be that it is truly a not a museum about campaigns but a campaigning museum you know we have often we often talk about being a politically neutral museum which we are we don't support any 
political party. We're not affiliated to any political party. But I feel quite strongly that we don't shy away. I think <laughs> I'm very much a one for creating reaction and being mm-hmm. controversial and not always talking about oh we help people find their voices but recognize that recognize that every single person already has a voice yeah and actually here just gives them a place to shout really really loud about whatever they want to shout about i think being very active in keeping up with contemporary fights taking a stance on a lot of contemporary campaigns Mm -hmm. things that we feel strongly about that we feel need to be heard and represented I Mm -hmm. think we need to do that and I think it's whilst I love looking back at looking back at the past is one of my favorite things to do in the world but actually start to really talk about how they inform our future Mm -hmm. and not just not just giving people a space to reminisce but giving people a space to plot and to challenge yeah. and to change, I think, is my favourite thing. I want this place to be just one big virtual soapbox that people just can stand up on. And we are really holding people, putting people on our shoulders so they can change the city and the world that they live in. And that, to me, is really important, that we're not just hanging banners for people to like. We're encouraging people to bring out their own banners. That's That's what I want from a radical politically active museum and finally please use this opportunity to plug the museum exhibition and the program for this year i feel you've already done that I feel like really I well <laughs> i think yeah i mean represent is going to be it's going to be incredibly powerful when's it open it opens on the 2nd of june it runs till 3rd of february so you've got ages to come and see it there is some absolutely beautiful stunning and powerful objects in there you will feel challenged, you will might feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you will come out wanting to make a change and wanting there to be a election so you can go and use your vote, the vote that so many people have fought for. Um, there's also some incredible suffrage history as well. You know, I couldn't not sneak that in there. So, you know, it, it really is a chance for everyone who loves history, who loves campaigns, who wants to learn more um, about representation equality. This is the place to come and do it and to celebrate what's happened, but also to challenge how we're going to move forward as well. Thank you very much, Helen, thank for you. talking to the Seaworth. Yeah, thank you for choosing to talk to me. Dear the Seaworth, I'm not a conservative, but a collections manager, but our worlds often converge in many ways. My question is, I'm doing condition reports for works of art on paper that have been displayed in historic homes, some for 40 years or more. They're being retired to storage. I felt, and this is how I proceeded, that the only way to accurately gauge their condition was to separate them from their frames. Part of me felt that it was almost sacrilegious. As a conservator, is this how you would proceed? Postscript, they're not going back in their frames. From Evelyn. Dear Evelyn, thank you for your incredibly thoughtful question. So, is it okay to take the paintings out of the frames? I think on the first way of looking at it is looking at the balancing act. What are the push and what are the pull factors? I would be looking as a conservator at the significance of the frames. Are the pictures in frames that are original to them or original to the house? Have they always been in those frames? Are they part of the aesthetic that the original curator made? On the other hand, things that would sort of argue against you keeping them would be perhaps the frames are damaging to the um, pictures. Perhaps the backings are acidic, they're distorted or damaged, perhaps they're providing poor RH protection. You sometimes get that where there's a big 
crack or gap down the back of the frame. Sometimes there's things like sellotape holding them into the frames or masking tape. You would have a look at those things and balance them up. Another factor you should look at is how is the object described in the catalogue entry? Is it described as a picture or a framed picture? How was it collected? Or has it always just been there? These things should be considered and balanced up. For sure, if you're going to take pictures and put them into storage, it's going to be a better preservation strategy if they go into an excellent acid-free mount and acid-free box that's correctly sized on a shelf that the box carefully fits on. That's assuming that all you want to do is protect the image. If you separate the picture from the frame with the intention of putting them back together at some point in the future, I think that's a tad um, unlikely. And I think most of us know that separated pieces end up staying separated. So this is clearly a balancing act. And how do you decide? Well, you could look at something like the ICON Code of Practice or Accreditation Guidelines, but they're not going to tell you. The only place that you're really going to get advice is in the situation of accreditation and acquisition and disposal, if the frames themselves are um, accessioned. So if the frames themselves are accessioned, I suggest that you have to work out a way to keep them. But you don't tell me that this is necessarily a museum. So that asks us about the question of whether this is necessarily accredited, whether it's simply just a picture in a frame. Do we have any duty of authenticity to the old? What indeed does authenticity actually mean? In military museums, they very often re-ribbon medals. Replacing um, worn parts in engines in industrial museums is quite common. And in contemporary art collections now, we're seeing examples of good practice where art is remade following a procedure. Just because it's old doesn't necessarily require it to be kept. I've just had a chimney pot taken off the roof of my house that's nearly 200 years old. And although I've kept a bit of it as a plant pot, I haven't kept the whole structure. If I, ha- if you look at the example of a church with pews in it, if you were to move those pews out of a part of the area in order to give the church a new life as a performance space and the income from that helps preserve the building, then that's traditionally being considered an acceptable preservation strategy. So we clearly are able to consider the, the greater good of the main part as justifying alterations to parts of an object of a building. But I think what makes those decisions good or bad is how they're made. Are they thoughtful decisions made in consultation with the people of care, who care? I think one of the things that we do in collections care too often is make medical analogies. And I think for your example, the medical analogy falls apart. Although in human care, we want and expect for each patient to be offered an equal standard of care and we recognise the rights of people to health care, objects simply do not have these. So if I have an old master, I want to sloop gel onto it and scrub it for clickbait. Sadly, I think for most of us, I can. If I have an old master art painting and I want to paint Star Wars characters onto it, and it's mine, I can. It only exists if there's a separate protection for that object that is built in by people ascribing protections that these things become a problem. If the building is less listed, if the collections are designated. In these situations, the, um, the problem exists because the act of protection has been put in place. So I would say... Your, your decision depends on whether or not the frame has any actual designated protection. Is your collection an accredited museum? Is the frame listed in the catalogue? I can tell you that if you haven't discussed this issue with the owners, then I think it's a problem. 
I think if you've been disposing of the feelings without considering it in detail, without thinking through your rationale, then that's a problem. But if the um, frames are not identified as part of the collections, if the images are going to be um, put into a well-preserving box, acid-free box, acid-free months, high-quality packaging, then you will be extending the life. And if that's done in conjunction with the owners or the managers, then it's probably fine. I think that what we know about the, the medical analogy and the rights analogy for objects is that the right doesn't exist within the object. The right exists much more within us as people and our having rights, or if we argue for them, rights to have access to our cultural heritage and identity. And this is such a big question, isn't it, at the moment when we see those rights under attack around the world. So really what we're looking at is to what extent are we respecting the rights and needs of the people who care about these things. And I think that was how I would make my final decision. Thank you so much for your question, Evelyn. Over and out. This time I will be reviewing Feminism in Museums, Intervention, Disruption and Change, Volume 1, edited by Jenna C. Ashton from Museums Etc. This is a new collection of 29 essays from museums and galleries from all over the world, discussing and presenting the impact of feminism in different institutions and the ways that museums can be used as forums for the discussion and development of feminist issues to different audiences. I'll be giving an overview here as there's such a wealth of work, topics and projects. All I can achieve is an impression and an encouragement to you all to seek out a copy for your own work. It begins by introducing the issues and the roots of feminist theory, challenging the white male ownership of artistic judgment and historic storytelling, with the goals to raise awareness through education and public programming. After this, and a forward from Maura Riley at the Centre for Feminist Art, the essays are grouped into three topics. Theory and practice, founded on feminism and artist intervention. Theory into practice explores the use of feminist theory and how it can be used to shape spaces and content. Now, in theoretical books, a section called Theory into Practice always causes alarm bells to ring for me as something opaque and confusing that I won't really understand. But here, the first chapter is an interview with Amelia Jones, who, in conversation, discusses feminist curating, her artistic practice with feminism, and what that means to her and others in the world of contemporary art. The other chapters in the section also use the language of political and feminist theory to discuss very current issues in society all over the world, including the fight for citizenship and representation both inside the museum and out. Generally, this section explores issues of equality in museums, both curatorially and as a place of work for for an increasingly female workforce. The following section, founded on feminism, is full of case studies of organisations that started specifically through feminism, equality and ideals of human rights. In women's museums, hubs for feminism, for example, Astrid Schoniger gets into the nitty-gritty of what a feminist museum is and how they began presenting examples from all over the world. The following chapters detail different institutions of note, their journey and processes of operations, and we have voices from archivists, artists, midwives and sex workers. The latter I found very powerful indeed. There is so much power in this chapter, I really can't do it justice. Reading about the examples from first-hand accounts provides something that discussions of political theory somehow just can't. The final chapter, Artist Intervention, presents a huge number of projects from feminist artists that tackle the issues set out in the introduction of the work and bring in new audiences by changing methods of communication and interpretation. 
Many artworks involving interaction and performance move away from the mainstream conservation, but this and just collections use in research as part of the work all point to a change in how museum spaces are used that conservators will need to manage and possibly also mitigate. There are some instances in this work, unsurprisingly, when the language could be more accessible to the unfamiliar audience. For a collection of papers focused on developing the communication of feminist issues to new and different audiences, I could argue here that a great deal of the work that needs to be done in museums needs to start with getting museum professionals on board with this to begin with. On the other hand, the intro does, the intro does a lot to present the issues of feminism and women's rights and equality, and those particularly unfamiliar won't pick up a book called Feminism in Museums anyway. For me, this is an exciting, hopeful and empowering read that will be an excellent springboard for new projects and for communicating the value of proposals to colleagues who have not maybe encountered this sort of work before. There's a huge variety in the type of writing as well, some highly theoretical and deep and academic and others more accessible and anecdotal. Generally very enjoyable, but it will take me a long time to get through all of the works because there's just so much. Thank you very much. So if you're interested in purchasing a copy of this, it is available on the Museums Etc. website. Volume 1 out at the moment is £75 and Volume 2, I think, is in the works at the moment. So nip onto that website and have a look. Oh, slight correction. Volume 2 of Feminism and Museums is out now. Uh, it has just come out and you can buy both Volume 1 and 2 as a bundle for £125 and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. And now for some comments, questions and corrections. Uh, While we've been off air, uh, Stuart has written to us and he writes in, my apologies if you already dealt with this issue, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on industries and jobs that are peripheral to the core work of conservation, framing technology, 3D printing or whatever. Doubtless you're aware that this sector isn't exa- exactly brimming with job opportunities. And that seems to be even more the case in Australia, where he's from. So he thinks he's more likely to get a peripheral field job than a conservation job. And he'd be interested to hear our thoughts. It's an interesting, it's an interesting comment, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. There aren't loads of conservation no. jobs. There's only so many. Um, but it's a profession, isn't it? And it's often the the position that people say, right, well, we need a conservator. Yeah. So let's get one when yeah. actually you need three, three yeah. <laughs> and some techs and some framers. And, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 So, mm, it, right. I think the problem here is actually the general funding of the museum sector mm. is like really, really, really struggling right now. So, for example, if I'm putting, well, right, say that we're putting on an exhibition, you know, I'm the conservator, there's um, collections people involved, but maybe we need something framed or we need a mount maker or something. And then we just told us no money for that. So just mm. make do with whatever you can make, you know, yourself out of paper, you know, and it's, it's hard because while I want to say the jobs are there, sometimes they're just not because there's not money to get anyone in to do those jobs either. And that's, yeah. that's the hard but one. But then I think there's freelance Oh yeah, is, is a possibility here because I think I've encountered in the past, 
essentially freelance mount makers, freelance oh, yeah. framers of collection material, and quite a lot that that work because they know that no one keeps a full time a, a full time yeah, no, mounter exactly. on staff, however much they could really do with one. And I mean, you are right. There are actually more peripheral jobs than we might be appreciating here. Because yeah, there's uh, an overall technician, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, mount makers and framers, just mm-hmm. like we said. But then it can even be museum photographers. People don't have that anymore. No, but, that's rare, but isn't if, it? But if you can be a photographer for for a digitization project mm-hmm. where people put some their database online, for example, and you have object handling experience because you have a conservation background, you will be a gold mine for yeah. whoever's doing that project. Yeah. So, I mean, adjacent fields, there's certainly nothing wrong with, with going into them. And if you have a conservation knowledge, it might actually be your unique selling point for being a freelancer in that field. So, you know, being a, say, a conservator, a gone frame maker or something, that's going to be hugely valuable. And that's going to be something that you really need to, you know, tell people and like, because that's going to be your selling point. So, yeah, whilst I don't think the sector has loads of jobs just in general, I feel like... No, that's obviously that's a valid path mm-hmm. to take, you know, to go into an adjacent field and then make the most of what kind of training and background you have. I think that's totally a thing. Good I don't luck. know. If, I don't know if that helps or hinders, but best of luck, Stuart. Good luck. Um, hope you're still listening. Patreon shout out. We've uh, got quite a few new the patrons. Thanks so much. Uh, Thank you. Shout out to Natalie Karras, Luke Addington, she who must not be named, Roisin <laughs> Byrne, and uh, Museum Archipelago, uh, a fellow podcast, uh, for becoming our patrons on Patreon. Thank Welcome. You so Thank much. you. Yeah. Thanks so much. If you fancy supporting our work, you can go to patreon.com slash the C word. Thanks very much. That's how we stay on air. <laughs> For listening with the C word, and you've been listening to Jennifer Lankwart, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenny Mathiason. Join us next time for an episode about professional bodies. In the meantime, you can check out our website at theseaword.show, tweet us at theseawordpodcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Missick, used under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.